What do you want of me? Get off my world. Get off my world. It belongs to me. If you can't handle rejection, then I think you better leave. You can call us fanatics, but the truth is we're hardcore. We love Hey, all you cool cats and kittens. Welcome back to Get Off My World, a podcast about all things Doctor Who. My name's Pat. I'm Joshua. And I'm Kelvin. And we are three guys who are totally socially distancing right now, and that's why this probably sounds a little unusual to you. Well, you know the reason. Minnesota's in shelter in place because of COVID-19, but we're going to lean into this and give you the quality Doctor <laughs> Who content you deserve, because you are important and special. For those of you who are just joining us, we like to do five rounds rapid for Get Off My World. And our first round is going to be kind of a kinder, gentler round, because sometimes we can get a little cranky about the show that we all love very much. So our first round is something we like to call Temporal Grace, where we just share something that we love about the universe of Doctor Who. Kelvin, why don't you start today? Well, recently the Queen of England gave a speech, basically from what I understand, just uh, encouraging Great Britain to to hang in there about the whole uh, coronavirus crisis and, you know, we're all going to get through this, you know, stiff upper lip, all that kind of stuff. And she made the mistake of delivering this message while wearing a green dress. That's exactly the right shade of green for uh, chroma key stuff. And so a lot of people were chroma keying odd things onto the Queen <laughs> and while my personal favorite was someone chroma keyed on the sixth doctor's costume <laughs> and it actually fits you know? like the sizing was like really good on it and, and, she pulls uh, it off too in all fairness yeah. not everybody it, can wear that <laughs> yeah no it, i'm an autumn and, and you know his colors are a little too springy for me i think <laughs> but it's that face of the queen it just dares you to judge her which <laughs> That outfit demands a face like that. Yes, I'm wearing a quilt. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of the cat, she should have really had like a couple of corgis up there on her. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'd have been into that. How about you, Josh? Anything oh. giving you joy these days? As always, when I go through my day-to-day -day life, I'm always surprised by how many experiences I either consciously or subconsciously relate to Doctor Who. And it is still happening here in the midst of COVID-19. Um, I am ridiculously considered an essential worker. <laughs> I work in a grocery store. And as things have escalated uh, in our situation, my responsibilities at the grocery store have changed from managerial to really hands-on as we have rolled out curbside online grocery shopping where you can get your groceries delivered right to the curb for you. You never have to step in the store or see anybody. But for precautions, I am now wearing 
ill-fitting gloves and a big mask. And today I was taking different items of food off the shelf and putting it in a bag and trying to look around through my mask and trying to push buttons on the iPhone app through my big clumsy gloves. And I just kept feeling like this feels so familiar to me. Like I feel like I've seen this or I'm feeling something I have seen. And I was like, this is what it's like to do the job of a Doctor Who monster. <laughs> like every time I pushed the button in my big clumsy gloves and tried to look at the iPhone through my mask, it was like I was detonating a massive explosion dramatically, but missing the giant button <laughs> by an inch because I can't see, I can't manipulate things, but at least you, you I'm not emanating uh, your groceries. Yeah, you could have been one of the aliens from the android invasion. <laughs> they had a virus weapon. They did, yes. I feel we should have replaced all Whole Foods workers with Cybermen a while ago. Though. <laughs> <laughs> it would not be a vector for an, that sort of infection. So uh, thank you, Doctor Who, for even making a, uh, a viral lockdown marginally entertaining. <laughs> well, for my uh, temporal grace today, I just uh, want to spend a moment admiring all the kind of quality Doctor Who fan and creator content that's been showing up online. Jodie Whittaker has done two videos now in character as the doctor, one saying, hey, everybody, we're going to get through this. It's, this isn't going to last forever. Be nice to each other. And one that I think just showed up today or maybe yesterday when we're recording this about social distancing and washing hands and stuff. And this is in addition to some of the live tweet Doctor Who rewatches that have been going on around the globe. I know that there was a, a viewing of Rose that a lot of people took part in and Russell T. Davies was part of the live tweeting experience there. And then also Matt Smith, Karen Gillan, and Tony Current, uh, and the writer of Vincent and the Doctor did a live tweet of Vincent and the Doctor. And then just today, I read that uh, Stephen Moffat has created a new 13th Doctor story to tie in with uh, his own continuity, which is so new that I haven't even read it or know anything about it yet. So I think a lot of these Doctor Who related creators have a lot of time on their hands like everyone else does now and they're they're giving back in the ways that they know how and I'm as a Doctor Who fan very pleased to see that. Okay, next item on the old podcast agenda is uh, what we call special topics Dalek where one of us presents a topic uh, that is Doctor Who related in some fashion and we chew it to the bone. And uh, I understand Pat has something for us this week. I do. Do you guys know, uh, this has been floating around the internet for a while, there's this sort of Dear Abby style relationship questions that are usually like a long block of text that people put there um, out onto Reddit and whatever, and they ask, am I the asshole? Oh, yeah. A-I-T-A. So I want to ask you guys if you think... In my relationship to some of the new stuff that's happened in this current season of Doctor Who, AITA, <laughs> inspired by the latest Jodie Whittaker season, about which we'll have more to talk about on a future episode. So I don't want to get into super specifics about things. But there's an element in this current season that seems to kind of walk back the relatively common Doctor Who idea that there are fixed points in time, that there are certain things that can't be changed. And there's at least one episode that really seems to play with, I guess, all future is now just potential future. Everything is malleable. 
There is no sort of continuity. Everything can be changed. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, I find myself kind of resisting this because I kind of grew up as a, a kid watching Bronze Age DC Comics trying to move heaven and earth, trying to weave all the decades worth of nonsense continuity from all their old Silver Age comics into some kind of coherent whole, the Legion of Superheroes, well, who is this, and when did Superboy do this, and whatever. But now, you know, as, as I'm a middle-aged man, I've seen just this absolute explosion of, um, say, superheroes on television and broadcast broadcast tv that are different than superheroes that are on premium cable or that are in movie theaters and they might be the same characters and they might be kind of different versions of the same characters but they're all incompatible and they bear only the faintest resemblance to each other and i guess it's all just a big old multiverse where cause and effect don't matter and actions have no meaningful consequences and we can just choose to ignore whatever we don't like in favor of producing a momentary effect on the viewer that'll be forgotten next week when the next arbitrary change undoes it and it's all just a big deployment in a field of oh i guess uh, we just like the images of, of superman or batman or whatever and none of it coheres or makes a a realistic human level story. So I guess you guys, AITA? Yes. AITA, you got AMI, Kelvin? <laughs> I do want to get clarity on this. If you're asking sincerely, I think the assholery comes when you begrudge other people's enjoyment of it. If I don't like something and then get online and just make sure everyone knows it and make sure I suck as much enjoyment out of other people's <laughs> life as possible. I don't want to crush anyone else's enjoyment. Well, I mean, large, long-running media narratives are always going to be fraught with contradictions and changes of direction and, and things. And as long as, like, the broad strokes are, are still there, I'm not too worried myself. I mean, for me, and I, I recognize this is sort of a weird attitude with a, a geeky person, but just using uh, Batman as an example... If I go to see a Batman movie or or read a Batman comic or something, I don't necessarily want to see my Batman. I already know what that is. I already have that in my head. I know what my Batman is. I want to see something I, I wouldn't have thought of. So it's a certain amount of novelty, but there are limits to it beyond which it doesn't yeah. become something different. Yeah, and if you're asking me to, to point out the exact point in which no, no. That flips, I, I couldn't do that. But, I mean, it's no, just no. going to be subjective, of course. Yeah. But let me, if you guys don't mind, let me follow up with a kind of a more abstract philosophical development of this argument. It runs behind a lot of the things that I think of when I think of what stories are and what stories should be. And it's kind of why I, I hit the brakes on this latest season of Doctor Who when it just kind of threw out this idea that, oh, I guess this potential future is, um, is just meaningless and I guess we could change it if we want. And that's because. When I think of stories, if you'll indulge me for a minute, I think of that a normal story is based on um, the structure of a human life, where there is a beginning, there is a development over the course of it, and it ends at some point. And this is why a lot of stories like in DC Comics or Marvel Comics, I've always kind of resisted them on some level because they begin and there's a perpetual middle and there is no finish to it. They just kind of are constantly in this field that's ever evolving and changing and it never resolves anywhere. And one of the things that I've always admired about Doctor Who is that because the fact that 
the lead actors always have to change. They built in that death structure within Doctor Who right from the beginning. As soon as William Hartnell uh, regenerated into Patrick Troughton, there was a built-in end, even if it wasn't a permanent style end, but it was more of a human being style arc than it was in, say, Marvel Comics, which I think Marvel or DC are a corporate style storytelling where it it doesn't mimic the lifestyle of a human being it mimics the lifestyle of a corporation which is it is born and it develops and it constantly changes itself according to whatever it, the market forces demand of it and it potentially never ends or if it does end it stops it doesn't finish and so to see this kind of attitude kind of pushed into Doctor Who in this last season, that was, that did kind of hurt me on a level that I didn't know that the show could hurt me anymore. I may have had a long relationship with Doctor Who, but I was, was kind of flabbergasted by that. So thank you for indulging me with that little narratology digression. No, I mean, I, I try to be pretty cognizant of when a get off my lawn type attitude is creeping into my thinking because I think that's something that should be resisted. I and not indulged. <laughs> We're old. <laughs> so for our third round, this is something we like to call the randomizer. And this week, the randomizer has pulled up the third season William Hartnell episode, The Ark, starring uh, Bill Hartnell as the Doctor, Peter Purvis as Stephen, and Jackie Lane as Dodo in her first full-length ad- adventure debut. This is from March 1966. It's a four-parter. Uh, I've seen this several times. I recently watched it again for, for this podcast. What it is? What are people's thoughts? This is an interesting one. Well, I think the obvious thing that most people comment on is this episode one, episode two, jump through time to episode three and four structure that really seems to suggest what the new series did so much, particularly under Stephen Moffat, this tiny whiny thing that classic Doctor Who didn't do much, didn't take advantage of as much as the new series does. No, not at all. I mean, if, if people haven't seen it, um, the first two episodes take place on the arc that's traveling through space. And then the doctor and his companion solve the problem and they give him the TARDIS and they leave. And at the end of episode two, they show up again in the same place. And there's a little stinger that indicates that they're in the same place and a lot of time has passed, in this case, 700 years. But if it weren't for that little stinger at the end of episode two, you the audience would probably have thought that they were done with the story. Because early Doctor Who adventures ran wildly from two episodes to 12 episodes. We only just had the Daleks master plan a very short time before this. So anybody tuning in is not necessarily going to know in advance how long this particular story is going to last. And so it's completely plausible that oh, we had a two episode story and now we're done. Except that, oh, I guess now we're in the same place and we're going to continue the story for two more episodes. And that's fun. And it's not really done very often in classic Doctor Who. The first story tells also a very unconventional and interesting Doctor Who story. It's about the unwitting consequences of time travel, of just stumbling in somewhere. Uh, Basically, Dodo gives these advanced future humans a, a deadly cold. And there's a great conversation in here where Stephen asks, you know, do you think this has happened before that we've <laughs> carried an infection <laughs> from one age to another? Uh, and, and the doctor basically um, just says, it's too horrible to think about. 
He's basically like most Americans <laughs> during the month of January and February. <laughs> Yeah. I just don't want to think about that possibility. We just have to assume that he he must have fixed that at some point after this, because otherwise, yeah, we're confronted with the possibility of 13 plus doctors just traveling through time and space, committing unwit- unwitting genocide on, yeah. on numerous alien races. So the TARDIS has nanobots that fly out and clean all that up. You guys, though, plague. Everywhere, man. And this is the last I'm going to say about it. But the first thing Dodo does in this episode is sneeze. And that's what causes this entire thing to jump off, uh, which is great, by the way, narratively. But we can't get away from the plagues. Ever since I read Malcolm Hulk's Doctor Who and the Cave Monsters, which was the adaptation of the Silurians when I was about 10 years old, I've had a specific fear of pandemics. So this has not been a great time for me. Um, everything I've seen was like, later in this episode, we're going to be talking about a big Finnish audio that has a plague in it. Um, my wife and I just watched the adaptation of Stephen King's The Outsider. There's a scene in there where they're in a graveyard of Spanish flu victims. We started watching Star Trek Next Generation again because that gives us a lot of comfort. Two of the first four episodes, Plague. What are we doing, Kelvin, Josh, for this? They are Plague. There's an awful lot, if not outright Plague, there's an awful lot of Plague metaphors in genre science fiction stuff. Zombie movies. Did anyone else get really distressed by how much Dodo touched her face after we realized? (laughs) (laughs) Stop touching your face. Sneeze into your sleeve, Dodo. Come on. Come on. Can I say that it's wonderful that they have actual animals in the arc? The very first scene is like a monitor lizard or something. And then there's there's a toucan. There's a snake. It's not stock footage. They're actually there. The actors interact with them. There's even an elephant. I got to look this up for a sec. It was filmed in like an actual like zoological garden that was in London at the time. I wonder if there was any real animal caregivers there, though, because that first shot always pisses off the part of me that's very sympathetic to animals because it's just it's clearly that some jerk threw that toucan on top of the monitor lizard in the opening shot. <laughs> but it is pretty astonishing to see uh, non-stock footage animals in Doctor Who. <laughs> I can't find it now, but I remember something about it was like an arboretum that they stocked with like actual animals as some tourist attraction thing in London or something. And it was not anything that made any real biological sense. Which is fine for this story. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't really make a lot of biological sense on any level. Should we just talk about the monoids? Maybe we should save the mono discussion for when we do the second part of yeah. Well, I mean, let's get the first part of the story out of the way. It's a fairly straightforward story of the doctor and his companions bring a virus to this semi-fascist far future society that it disrupts the entire thing. And then the doctor eventually finds the cure for it and saves the day. And so the interesting thing about it, at least to me, is the society that's implied. It's quite harsh. The first thing we see about them is that they consign one of their members to 700 years shrunk and permanently separated from his family and friends, presumably. For what? For kind of a mistake is from what we understand that he did. So right from the beginning, we understand that this is a pretty harsh. Yeah, we also get the idea that they're very judgmental and very xenophobic as well. They are afraid of the aliens on the planet they're heading toward. 
They are not too nice to the monoids. And we'll talk more about that. Uh, And it also takes place against the permanent background of the end of the world. We see the Earth actually burning at the end of episode two. So these are, as far as we can discern from the story, the last humans that are around. This must take place at exactly the same time as the Christopher Eccleston story, The End of the World, which also shows that. And so presumably this isn't the very last batch of humans that there are. But in 1966, the implication would have been that this is what the human race is. Most of them are shrunk, and the ones that are around are intolerant. Uh, The doctor calls them intolerant and selfish later on. And the commander seems to be drunk, I gotta say. Even by the kind of relaxed acting standards of Doctor Who, that guy is like really just, I think the actor was literally drunk when he he was recording this. I also loved the very first time you see a monoid, he's working the fax machine in the court. (laughs) The monoid with the fax machine is like clearly an essential worker here. I had some 90s flashbacks. I had so many temp jobs like that monoids. <laughs> yeah, the the uh, technology sure has come a long way in 10 million years. <laughs> what are the big items on the ship? Uh, fax machines and golf carts. <laughs> <laughs> I also want to point out that the medicine in the far future is apparently absorbed through the skin because the doctor has a whole thing with Dodo that where he says he doesn't need to use a hypodermic needle. So I guess that scene in David Tennant's first, uh, or I guess second episode, New Earth, where he just kind of sprinkles and sprays medication <laughs> over all of those people, I guess makes canonical sense. I did, and I was being unnecessarily nitpicky when I was criticizing it. So I don't know, AITA? <laughs> yes. Harsh but fair. Let's talk about episodes three and four, because that's a big twist. The twist being they move how many years into the future? 700. And the monoids have become the evil overlords of the humans. Yep. Evil, somewhat incompetent, buffoonish overlords. Goofy, goofy overlords. The thing I couldn't get past is you have this society with like a servant race. They are literally given a voice and they turn into horrible fascist dictators. <laughs> You know, and it, it, to me, it didn't read like some kind of justice thing or, uh, you know, as ye so, so shall ye reap thing. It really came across to me like foreigners are just evil and you shouldn't give them any power. Kelvin, I think you are spot on. Those are exactly yeah. the things that I zeroed yeah, yeah. in on in the story, because yeah. I consider this, the arc, as part of a long running tradition of stories developed by colonial societies, yes. like the British Empire, that demonstrate the kind of anxiety they have over lower classes or races rising up and taking over. There's a story that Herman Melville wrote called Benito Sereno about a slave ship was taken over by the slaves, which is probably the best version of this kind of story that I'm aware of, at least the best written one. A very uncomfortable, weird story, but anyway, I'm getting off track. This one is kind of more normal This uh, because the result, as you say, it's, it's disproportionate in a narrative sense. From what we see in episodes one or two, the monoids are, they're treated okay. Or at least, I mean, the humans don't treat each other all that much better. The humans even give them the literal ability to speak with the voice mm-hmm. boxes, like you say. But then it's, as soon as they apparently have the opportunity because the TARDIS virus sapped their will according to the monoid, they're ready to rise up and pounce. 
by the logic of this story, it was better that they be servants because as soon as you take your boot off them, they're ready, man. They're going to go for your throat right there. The humans accepted the responsibility of caring for the monoids, according to the doctor. But also, he says, they treated them by like slaves. Those are the poles of the colonial mindset, right? You accept the responsibility of caring for this race, but you also treat them like slaves. This is unresolvable psychologically. This is what any colonial or, or slaver race is going to have to deal with in their minds. So it's fascinating in that way. I don't think, I don't know if it's ethical exactly, but, no. but it's certainly interesting. Well, I'm just wondering how consciously they're even working this through in this script. Yeah, and I don't know enough about, you know, what the writers had in mind or what the directors had in mind, or even what you can really have in mind when you're writing and filming on this sort of enormously accelerated schedule, like you're doing in 1966 for Doctor Who's. But I mean, it's not going to be in anyone's top 10 list of greatest classic Doctor Who episodes, but I think the ideas behind it are super interesting. I think the Bold choices of like the monoids with their beetles look and their, their yeah. ping pong ball eyes are are just. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't even think of the beetles look angle. Like these are the ruffians who are going to. Yeah, no, I don't. I, and I don't think that's deliberate. I think that's just yeah function of the costume department. But it just kind of look like. Could think about is when they took those ping pong eyeballs out of their mouth. Just this huge string of. Sure, <laughs> they spit them at each other for, to have a good time. And what if the second doctor's haircut was actually inspired by the monoids instead of the Beatles? Oh my God, he was a monoid the entire time. <laughs> the scene where the monoid is vandalizing the Refusian's house just slays me. Man. Oh, yeah. he's like, "Come show yourself, or I will do this." And he's holding up this cheap ass vase. <laughs> It is a super cheap, poorly realized episode at this point, especially three and four. Yeah, they, the money ran out. Oh, and the acting did as well. When Dodo asked the one monoid, are you up to something? <laughs> he goes, uh... I gotta say, Dodo, Dodo does not exactly cover herself in glory in this entire episode. She's kind of insufferable. She comes out wearing her stupid French costume tunic from the end of the massacre, and she doesn't believe that they've traveled anywhere. She's kind of just, yeah. But she does say, hey, that's gear at some point, which is wonderfully 1966. There's also that great, almost Trump-like uh, moment with the first doctor when... Stephen is confronting him about the uh, spreading viruses, and he's like, well, usually we're quite healthy. (laughs) (laughs) Except for those times when we infect the rest of the human race. (laughs) And now round four, silence in the library. And today we will be talking about the last three Fifth Doctor comic book stories from the 80s. Lunar Lagoon, Four Dimensional Vistas, and The Moderator. Lunar Lagoon and Fourth Dimensional Vistas are written by Steve Parkhouse with art by Mick Austin. Uh, The Moderator is art by Steve Dillon and uh, I assume is still written by Steve Parkhouse. Although, yes, doesn't give him credit here, but yes. He continues into the Sixth Doctor comics, which we'll talk about at some later point. Actually, I already have talked about, haven't we? Yes. We've talked about so much, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Doing this, we're so old. Lagoon, so why the name? There's no movie. Yeah, it, it, 
it doesn't have anything to do with the moon, and it's not really in a lagoon, as far as I can tell. Yes, it might be set around a lagoon, but uh, not usually at night. So the doctor is, well, he's on a Pacific island with a Japanese soldier. And he's fishing with his toe. Gross. Which seems much more like a sixth doctor thing, but here Peter Davison is doing it. And there's a Japanese soldier there. The doctor has mistaken the year. Well, no, as it turns out, it's an alternate reality where the war is still going on in the 1960s. And that's why the Japanese imperial soldier is there. So right off the bat, this is actually a version of John Borman's film, Hell in the Pacific, starring Toshiro Mifune and Lee Marvin as a imperial Japanese soldier and an American serviceman who are trapped on a Pacific island together. In addition to the doctor, there'll be an American serviceman, Gus, who will show up at the later part of the story. The story is clearly inspired by those stories of Japanese soldiers that are stranded on remote islands after World War II who still believe that the war is going on for like decades. I looked this up. There's particularly one fellow named Hiroo Onoda who stayed on his island until 1974. And they eventually had to fly in his former commanding officer to convince him that the war was finally over. But this has been an idea about wars longer than that. Because there's a Laurel and Hardy film where Stan Laurel is still in the trenches and thinks World War One hasn't ended. Blockheads. Yes. Thank you for the Laurel and Hardy support, Kelvin. Yes. <laughs> wow, I didn't like. Know. You know, you guard this trench until we get back, and then they go over the top, and Stan is guarding. And while they have left, like the armistice gets signed, but no one goes back to get stabbed. <laughs> War is funny. Apparently, this Onoda killed 30 Philippine people in those 29 years when he was still trapped on that island, by the way. Wow. So, yeah, it was, wasn't all fun and games for the Filipinos who uh, had to be around this dude. But this is not all fun and games either. I was struck immediately by... What a darker, real-world grittiness this story immediately had in contrast to the more cosmic comic strip stories we've discussed previously. Yeah, the Sakura tour was all over the place. It was in a, the Matrix kind of computer-generated world, and now we're just the Doctor and another guy, mostly, for the length of this uh, short little story. I guess the thing that really confuses me about this story is that it's, it's set in an alternate timeline where the war has, has gone on for decades longer. But what does that have to do with anything? <laughs> it doesn't accept as a prologue to the next story that we're going to talk about, I think. It's it, ultimately a uh, side effect of the Ice Warriors experiments. Oh, okay. I didn't pick up on that. Yeah, well, maybe it's time to move into four-dimensional vistas then. Well, uh, let me just mention one great Fifth Doctor moment. I feel like in the previous stories... Steve Parkhouse kind of used the Fifth Doctor rather generically, and he was a rather passive figure in those stories, an observer more often than not. And in Lunar Lagoon, as well as the stories we're about to discuss past that, he becomes very much the hero. Um, and then they have this very tragic Fifth Doctor moment when he takes the bullets out of that rifle, which is a reasonable action for him to take. But then, as is usual for the Fifth Doctor, his best of intentions turn out to have tragic consequences when Gus shoots and kills the Japanese soldier because the doctor removed the bullets. Very on brand, Peter Davison. Yeah, I do feel like I need to point out uh, the portrayal of the soldier. Oh, my God. First of all, it's a Japanese soldier, and his name is Fuji. 
they make a deliberate ironic point about that because he's so small. Yeah, it's just like I don't think that's an actual given name in Japanese. The point where he tries to feed the doctor raw fish because the Japanese eat weird, wacky food because they're foreigners. It's um, and, and the doctor's like, no, 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 thanks. <laughs> well, I think you're right. I, I mean, it's not the most culturally sensitive portrayal of a Japanese soldier. I think it, to digress a little bit, I mean, I think it's very of the early 1980s. Carrie and I yeah. are, are just now watching the miniseries adaptation of James Clavell's Shogun. It was written in 1975, but was filmed in, I think, I want to say 1980. And it was partly the cause of and partly the effect of a huge interest in Japanese culture among Western people. And so, although that book and miniseries are a lot more sophisticated in their portrayal of the culture than than this little story is, I think you can see how it sort of filtered down even that Nipponophile attraction to Japanese stuff, even into a little story here in a marginal magazine like Doctor Who Weekly. I forgive it in comic book form because it's operating on very broad strokes and stereotypes. I mean, the American is treated with the same stereotypical broad strokes as well. Yeah, I think Fuji is portrayed compassionately, but patronizingly. I think that is fair. And mostly as a as a way to kind of introduce Gus as the new companion, who doesn't actually, by the way, become a companion until the next episode. He's a He's a plot element here in Lunar Lagoon, but once four-dimensional Vista starts, he suddenly becomes a new uh, companion of the Doctor. He's a strange companion, and maybe that's the segue into the next story. <laughs> yeah, he really is. You know, an, an American soldier from World War II who's got, you know, one of these debonair pencil-thin mustaches. Like Josh was saying, all of these Steve Parkhouse Fifth Doctor stories, the Doctor is primarily an observer uh, and he tends to get paired with men of action who save him when things get hairy, like a uh, Sir Justin or mm-hmm. the godlike intelligence shade. And, and Gus is really within that tradition. He's the doctor is maybe more active in these stories, but there are more specific moments where Gus literally saves his life because the doctor turns into like a whole, a big nothing burger. <laughs> like the f- five thinks, oh my God, I'm on a parallel earth. I'm never going to get home to my own universe. He fills his sanity role and he walks into the sea in a daze and nearly drowns and Gus has to save him. And he goes into a kind of weird fugue state at the start of part four too, for no real discernible reason. And then he gets knocked out and then captured by the the ice warriors. So the sense is really kind of like Parkhouse wants to tell the story, but isn't really interested in the doctor per se. He just is using the doctor as a, as a method by which he can tell the story around him. But also the doctor ends up blowing everybody up at the end of. (laughs) No, you're right. He's far more active, especially at the climax of the story than he was in anything in Tides of Time, for example. Yeah. He just materializes his TARDIS on the deck of the ship and then leaves and lets it blow up. Very early fourth Doctor move. I want to point out it's a very early seventh Doctor move, too, because the Doctor mentions that he has been secretly investigating this Mm -hmm. Ice Warrior plot from the very first moment he landed in Stockbridge. There is no indication of that whatsoever up until now. No no sense because the plots don't intersect in any way that I can that I can detect. So it's clearly just Steve Parkhouse trying to throw his arms around the world in his second to last Fifth Doctor story and imply that there's some sort of big story arc. 
I like that. Everything I, like, I would like it better if it made sense, but yeah. It's absolutely true, but I also get the idea that Parkhouse was writing these half what he wanted to write and the other half is probably whatever the editor was telling him to do. Because he has zero interest in The Meddling Monk, for example. I would almost guarantee you that the editor said, hey, put this guy, The Meddling Monk, in here. There's no meaningful scene between the Fifth Doctor and the Monk. There's no real backstory. He's more interested in the team of soldiers that come and violently wipe out the Ice Warriors. Yeah. SAG3, they had a little cameo at the end of Stockbridge Horror, but I don't think they were ever used again in the comic as far as I know. But I thought they were the coolest thing in the world when I was a kid. It's telepathic, paranormal, special operations group of soldiers. And I think Steve Parkhouse was clearly, as you say, more interested in them than he was in The Meddling Monk, who, by the way, this is the first time The Monk has ever returned at this point in time. He was in uh, the time of he was in the Daleks Master Plan, and that was it. This is the first time in any Doctor Who fiction that he's come back. And the same thing with the Ice Warriors, who hadn't been around since Third Doctor days. Mm-hmm. So weirdly, this has an important place in Doctor Who continuity for his kind of tossed off a story as it actually is. I, I also want to point out a couple other fun things about it. Gus calls the doctor Doc, uh, who, you know, this is, I think, the first companion to do that. I mean, who else would? And also, this the story is written and published in 1983, so there's the that image of the chain of parallel Earths, the alternate universe Earths, uh, in a long... Yeah, it predates George Perez's Crisis on Infinite Earths by a couple of years, although I can't I can't swear that there wasn't this image in some early DC comic that might have uh, that might have influenced this. But but yeah, it's pre-Crisis on Infinite Earths. And then we move into the moderator, which is pretty comic considering how dark things get. It's very robocopy. Yeah. Know? It's got art by Steve Dillon, who is a guy I never really care for very much. He just died fairly recently. He did years and years worth of grotesque stuff on <laughs> in Hellblazer and Preacher, which I never liked. But this is bef- a lot before that. And so this is a fairly conventional 2000 AD style art that he's doing. I think it works fine. I definitely like him better than the other artists. I think he's more technically accomplished. I just don't. When he came into his own style, I guess I didn't really care for him. Uh, Nick Austin's art. He's one of those people who draws heads too big. There's there's a couple of frames where like the doctor looks like a, like a hobbit or something. It's true. I will say that Nick Austin's style better matches these type of stories than the previous more cosmic Tales. These stories are so. Oh, different. he would. He would have been awful at that. Yeah. Yeah. The, these are so different than the ones Dave Gibbons were illustrating that it, it puts a nice clean line between them. And I appreciate his artwork in these two stories much more. Yeah. So the moderator is. I don't know. It's. It's a strange transitional little story because it makes a fairly hard break with the stories that we've gone before. We go into this this far future thing that has this established hyper-capitalist structure with a literal frog in the Donald Trump role. Um, (laughs) Very 2000 AD comic, sort of over-the-top hyper-violence with the moderator going around, casually (laughs) blowing up whatever phone booth he happens to run across. Uh, He he married a little alien using a phone booth on an asteroid to call his mother. Gets obliterated. It's just, and he's still alive too. He's totally unhurt after. Even those guys that the moderator nukes on the planet, their temple or whatever, most of them seem to be fine too. This is the kind of Warner Brothers violence that uh, 
2080, I always kind of played with. Sometimes it was really brutal, but then sometimes it seemed to have no effect whatsoever. And it's an interesting effect because it makes you laugh and it's all jokes until we get to the end and the moderator, in a very realistic manner, guns down Gus. Yeah. One of the shortest lived companions, I got to say. <laughs> uh, exactly two stories and not very long ones at that. And the Fifth Doctor cries in that comic book panel. I wonder if that was an artist's decision or in uh, Parkhouse's actual script. But it's jarring to see tears running down the face of the Doctor. And we're supposed to wonder whether he's killed the moderator, too, because mm-hmm. he takes up the gun, which is, again, a very Peter Davison kind of thing. Uh, Fifth Doctor is always having to pick up guns he doesn't want to have to pick up and, mm-hmm. and do things with them that he doesn't want to do. But here we discover that it doesn't actually kill the moderator. It just... He just hates that song. (laughs) But I think there's a reading of it, and I don't know if it's intended. Did the doctor save him to put him in this hospital where he knew he'd be vulnerable to Dog Bolter? It's a real dark read of Peter Davison's tenure in this comic. But uh, but it is the last thing that we see of him. His last Mm -hmm. action is something we don't actually see him do, because in the very next comic, we're going to have Colin Baker. And continuity from this comic is going to go straight through because Dog Bolter has got a hit out on the Doctor, who between this comic and the following one will have changed from Peter Davison to Colin Baker. And he assigns Frobisher to go find him. And then Frobisher becomes the new companion. So things get very wacky from here. But this, so this is the send off of the Fifth Doctor in the comics. I mean, what do we the think? The last of panel of him is a close up of his hand firing a gun. <laughs> So on brand, man. (laughs) Totally five. So for our fifth and final round, we're going to take you to the end of Stockbridge with 2009's big finish release, Plague of the Daleks, the third and final part of the Fifth Doctor and Nyssa trilogy that took us back to Stockbridge in the first place. This was written by Mark Morris, uh, a horror writer who Clive Barker evidently said was one of the finest horror writers at work today. He has a lot of books uh, under his belt, including a bunch of Doctor Who stuff. This is the first one that I'm familiar with. Uh, this was released in nineteen or er, in two thousand and nine, so this is on the early side of the all zombie all the time swamping of <laughs> pop culture. So he gets a pass, at least from me, about the zombie side of the story. What do you guys think? It's a four parter. Fifth Doctor and Nissa does it wrap things up. Uh, what do we think about it? I enjoyed it thoroughly, but I also think it's my least favorite of the three. I think it does its job well, and it does it in a pleasingly traditional way. Uh, If you're looking for something really innovative or surprising, it's not here. But satisfying, I would say, in the big picture, yes. There's a nice little call out to Sir Justin and his epitaph. So an explicit Tides of Time thing that I was was happy to hear. Oh, but the Daleks blow up the Sir Justin statue. Well, they blow up all of Stockbridge, as it turns out. This is yeah. Well, at the time, you don't know they're going to do that. You're just worried about the suggestion statue. But yes, they destroy Daleks. Are why we can't have nice things. <laughs> I would be very curious to see uh, Dalek preservationists of any sort. They are conservative in many ways, but uh, <laughs> yes, conservation is not one of them. <laughs> the the doctor does call these Daleks. Lost soldiers who think the war is still going on, which is kind of 
a fun coincidence considering we're talking about Lunar Lagoon in this, yeah. this same episode. Well, I mean, it may not be. The, I mean, Morris may have read all those stories in preparation for this and decided to put that in as a little nod. That's possible too, yeah. The opening is very traditional Doctor Who. There are shades of Android Invasion and Delta and the Bannerman with the mashup of the abandoned village and then the obnoxious tourists on a time travel voyage. It feels kind of Russell T Davies too, I thought. I mean, it's 2009, so it has the the new series to use as a model. So a lot of those characters did seem to be sort of RTD kind of characters. The only thing that jumped out to me as seeming off would be the Doctor's complete lack of moral concern over the nth generation clones that were so overcloned that they were degenerating it seems to me like a human rights issue <laughs> that yeah. you might be more aghast at than like that's what you get when you just clone someone over and over again until they start to horribly degrade i agree it's a persistent problem with doctor who though like what is human and deserving of consideration and what isn't the doctor usually just kind of blandly goes by stuff except when he every now and then indignantly makes a ethical stand about you can't be treating this person in this particular way so it stands out as you say when this clearly weird thing like what are these people they're not androids they're not robots they're clones of some sort but they're not given any kind of ethical consideration from the doctor or apparently anyone else in the story even though as it turns out our main non-player characters are also of the exact same type of clone lineage they seem very adamant about saying that they aren't the clones at the end, that they had some sort of cellular regeneration just to keep them young. Mm -hmm. Again, even more ethical concerns, like we're not those lowly clones. (laughs) Right, right. No, my grandfather was a completely different type of such and such race. Yeah, no. It kind of opens up more questions than it answers. Uh, There's the overbearing wife trope that uh, was... Oh, yeah. It was a little tiresome, but I found it interesting that just when I was really sick of it they turned it a little on its ear with her being legitimately concerned about her husband and sacrificing her life when no one else would go out to him foolishly but yeah yes and the whole thing ends on an oliver goldsmith poem because of course the abandoned village is that's how (laughs) we're going to go out with uh with stockbridge which is fine a nice little pretentious touch but i always admire pretentious touches I don't know. I kind of wanted to see more of the fussy, tentacled alien professor character. He was pretty fun. But that's that's kind of my thing, I guess. For sure. Uh, When he activates his bioluminescence (laughs) protein or whatever, Mm -hmm. so proud of himself. And uh, the character says, that's beautiful. (laughs) Your admiration is noted. He was delightful. And the doctor's description of uh, his race, it was really funny. Blunt and humorless, but essentially non-aggressive. <laughs> we could all strive to be that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that could describe any number of people I've met. A large swath of Minnesota. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Lutherans. Yeah, space Lutherans. Oh, joy. <laughs> One thing about this particularly in the first couple episodes is that Nissa seems to reverse places with the doctor. And I feel like it's interesting. The doctor's subplot about trying to get some machinery to work seems more like the companion role. And they give Nissa the more action adventure. I'm 
stuck in the rain and fighting Daleks and working my way through the tunnel to their headquarters. And I think that was fun. But this whole trilogy is a real showcase for Nyssa. And if you're a Nyssa fan, it's one of the reasons I think that all three of these stories are a real highlight of the Big Finish run. They give her a lot to do. And uh, Sarah Sutton carries it off. Yeah, Nyssa was always the companion whose potential was was the least uh, explored in the actual TV show, I think. I agree. I love that Big Finish gives Sarah Sutton a chance to really branch, well, a decade's worth of branching out on this character. I think she knows everything about it backwards and forwards. It suffers a little from the classic Doctor Who curse of putting Daleks in the name of the episode and then saving their appearance for halfway through the serial. And you're like, oh, the Daleks are in this one? Yes. Oh my goodness, there's a plague. <laughs> it's also of the Daleks. <laughs> I do like the Dalek stories more when they're, you know, smaller scale. I, I When they're giant, giant galaxy conquering massive unstoppable armies i'm just kind of like eh, okay but you're seeing these like junky rusty daleks this probably has one of the best small scale dalek battles in the history of doctor who and that is daleks versus church pews <laughs> <laughs> and the daleks actually say proceeding with systematic destruction of wooden barriers <laughs> as they're trying <laughs> to navigate through church pews and this is like one of them, like when he comes out of the cryogenic uh, state or whatever, like the, the Daleks have been waiting in Stockbridge for like how many centuries? And then they get revived and one of them's like slightly malfunctioning. He's like, you have to kill me. <laughs> but I love the idea that the Daleks wait. They have this sort of meta knowledge that, you know, Doctor Who fans love Stockbridge. If we wait here long enough, they will tell a story about it <laughs> and we will capture the Doctor. It's a trap based on narrative probability. <laughs> <laughs> but overall, guys, I would say I, this trilogy stands out because it combines the classic series with comic books, with new series, as Pat mentioned, sensibilities to just sort of create something that is a little Doctor Who from every period of its existence. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's that sort of fusion of professional and fan art right? Mm -hmm. Because it clearly is, as you say, an homage to the old style of storytelling and it's written by prof professional writers and performed by the actual doctor and companions. But it has a sense of sort of, we're doing this just because we want to see it. it. It doesn't have that level of, we have to constantly move forward into new territory the way the new series by its nature has to. It, it can't constantly work itself out of the past the way that Big Finish can. I mean, if Big Finish can do three stories about Stockbridge and two about Frobisher and all the rest, uh, that's not something that we can expect from the from the new series. And it's something that I'm glad that this kind of subsidiary ecology of Doctor Who still exists, even in 2020, when it's an internationally regarded television show again. Well, folks, that's uh, another one in the can for us. But next time, we'll be back with something we recorded live at Console Room, Minneapolis and St. Paul's Doctor Who convention, where we will discuss the first part of the most recent Jodie Whittaker 13th Doctor season. Until that time, I'm Kelvin. I'm Pat. And I'm Joshua. And we're saying, Get off my world.
Oh, we didn't even talk about the security kitchen, although every Doctor Who nerd has covered the security kitchen to death. <laughs> it never gets old. Take them to the security kitchen. I would like to request to be in the security bathroom. <laughs>